This is the third Sunday of Advent, and we are looking at the Isaiah 9 passage, verses 6 and 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The key word in these two verses is the word government. Government. God's ideal government is a monarchy. It's a government that has a king, a sovereign, a lord. The quality of a monarchy depends upon the nature and the quality of this person, this king. If this king is righteous, there will be a righteous government. If this king is just, there will be a just government. If this king is merciful, there will be a merciful government. If this king is sacrificial, there will be a fair government. If this king is one who is loving, it will be an enfolding, a supporting, a comforting government. And that's the way God wants it. But the key to having this peace, and most of the words I've mentioned are components of the biblical notion of peace. Shalom, rightness, wholeness, health, fairness, goodwill, good fortune, good relationships, Comfort and joy, that's shalom. This monarch should be a prince of shalom, a prince of peace. If he is a prince of this peace, this peace with God, this peace on earth, this peace and goodwill toward men, if he is that kind of monarch, that kind of king and sovereign and lord over his people. And his people are like him and in his image and are following his footsteps and reflecting his character. The people will have enjoyment 
They will flourish. They will prosper. There will be joy in the land. It will be a kingdom of mercy, justice, righteousness, love, truth. It will be a wonderful place to dwell if we can just find such a prince. Now just for a moment, by way of review, and I think it's probably not necessary in the case of most of you, but there are some here and some watching that might be helped a little bit if we just sort of quickly review here at this particular point the mediatorial work of Christ. That is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to mediate to man, to bring to man the things of God. He came to be a mediator, one between God and man. And in order to do this, he must be God so that he might bring all things of God and bring very God himself to the people. But he also must be one of the people. He must be human in order to be the one who walks in the path and the steps of humanity and understands the created condition, both creator and creature. And in his incarnation, mysterious as it is, inexplicable as it seems to be, Jesus Christ fulfills these two natures. He has a divine nature, which is given to us in this first part of the verse, a son is given. A son is a status, a bestowal of a status, an adoption and an anointing. We read about it in the book of Psalms over and over with the coronation hymns of ancient Israel. Jesus is divine. He is also human. This is given to us in the second part of the parallelism where it says, for to us a child is born. A little baby, a human baby. Fingers and toes and head and feet. Fully human, homo sapien in every way. And these two natures are found in this one person, Jesus Christ, this one being unique, one of a kind, which is the notion of only begotten. He's the one of a kind, unique being. The theanthropic being, the theologians tell us, the, the theos, God, and anthropos, man, the God-man. And these two natures are together, unmixed, unconfounded, unconfused, Truly, two distinct natures in one unique person. Now that's an unusual king, isn't it? And all the mediatorial work of Christ is done through three offices that we see set forth in the Old Covenant. And they each are strengthened and taught and examined and embellished and exalted. There is the office of the prophet 
The prophet is the one who brings the word of God to man. He is the one who proclaims the truth of God. The truth of God about the ways of God and the will of God and the nature of God. The prophet says, thus saith the Lord. The prophet points to the nature of God and teaches us something about his power and his deity, his eternality. And the Old Testament is filled with prophets from Adam, Noah, and Abraham all the way through the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the rest. This is how God's word is mediated, is through the prophetic office. Along comes Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that he not just brings us the word of God, but he is the word of God. The word became flesh, incarnation, and dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us. The other office is the office of priest. The priest is the person that brings the peace, the atonement, the covering. That which has separated between God and man's sin is dealt with by the operational ministrations of a priest. And the Old Testament is replete with teachings about the priest, the priestly office, the priestly function, beginning with Adam. Adam was the first priest. Adam performed the first priestly act. It is a part of the priestly work to provide a covering, a, an atonement, a kafar. And he provided one. It was fig leaves. That was the covering. And it was inadequate. And from that moment on, God did the right thing and took a sacrificial animal. Many believe to be a lamb. But the priest made the offering on the high priest on the great day of atonement. We'll learn a lot more about that in the winter and in the spring when we begin to talk about the high priestly ministry of Christ. But that's exactly the office that Christ fulfills and brings this peace with God. Jesus is not just a priest, but a, a mediator between God and man. He is a high priest. He is certainly God. We've seen that in the first couple of chapters of the book of Hebrews, but then we see in those same chapters toward the end that he's not only divine, but and above all the angels and above all creation, but he is human. He's like his brethren. He's like his brothers. He's human just as they are. And if the prophet brings the truth of God, wherein Jesus is able to say, I am truth, the priest brings the mercy of God. Jesus Christ becomes that lamb of God, as well as that high priest, he becomes that sacrificial lamb. And we can 
say as they did on Jordan's banks that morning, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So God's work is mediated through the prophet. And Jesus is the true prophet. He is that prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And Jesus is a priest. He is that high priest. That true high priest. But he's also, as our text talks about today, he is the prince. Prophet, priest, and prince. He is the one who brings the righteous reign of God, the rule and the reign of God Almighty to his people. The prince is the king. The prince grows up to be the king. The prince is schooled in royal wisdom. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. The book of Proverbs is royal wisdom. That's where Christ is. He was a Proverbs man. In fact, the Bible even says in Luke that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's a direct quotation out of the Proverbs. Jesus grew up to be that quality of person, that prince growing up to be the king. He is the divine son of God in his deity, but he mediates to humanity because he is the son of David. And David was every bit human. We've looked at the life of David recently. He's a descendant in his humanity of King David. And if the prophet brings truth and the priest brings mercy, the priest brings justice, righteousness. And that's what we see in the balance of this particular passage here. We see the things that, that characterize. It's not a complete description, but this little piece of poetry here, this little one and a half verses of Hebrew poetry brings us a glimpse and a picture of the righteous rule of Jesus. And I would like to suggest to you that this is the germ. This is the seed. This is the essence of the Christmas story. I had a little fun exercise recently. Listen to this. We sing the Christmas hymns and the Christmas carols. Come and behold him, born the king. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come all you faithful. Born a child and yet a king, says Charles Wesley, and come thou long expected Jesus. Glory to the newborn king, says Charles Wesley, and hark the herald angels sing. And praises sing to God the King, Phillips Brooks writes in O Little Town of Bethlehem. Come and worship Christ the newborn King, we sing in angels from the realms of glory. Let us sing Alleluia to our King, we sing in that German hymn composed on a guitar, Silent Night, Holy Night. 
Born is the King of Israel, the first Noel, the King. And finally, my favorite, Isaac Watts, the great English hymn writer. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Earth receive her king. You remember Jeremiah. Jeremiah cried out, Eretz, Eretz, oh earth, earth, hear the word of the Lord. You remember the angels, they said, this will be a message to all peoples. It's global. It's universal. It belongs to all humanity of all time. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Now let me take a moment or two and just sort of sketch through some of the features of this kingdom. First of all, I'd just like to remind you that the kingdom of God is the theme of the preaching of all the Old Testament prophets. The kingdom of God took different configurations and different looks throughout different administrations and dispensations of biblical history. You look at the history of God's people, it's been a little different shape and form to it. But overarching all of it is the notion that the Lord is king and all of these men are just simply his vice regents, his helpers, his agents, his servants on earth to serve the crown himself. The kingdom of God is the preaching of the prophets. The kingdom of God is the preaching of John the Baptist. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is the preaching of Jesus. Jesus preached the same message about the kingdom of God and told manifold parables and stories about the nature of the kingdom. And even Paul in the middle of his missionary journeys, which are undoubtedly nothing but church planning, church building missions. He says in Acts 20, he's preaching the kingdom of God. So there's the scope of the kingdom of God. And we even saw last week in the previous verses, or, or in the uh, uh, verse 6, the part uh, that we are uh, passing over now, the names, the names are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We talked about each of these last week and we said that they are throne names. So there's a, the whole Bible is the, the story of the king and his kingdom. The king and his rule, his righteous rule. The king and his salvation for his people. The king and the nature of his people. The king and the future of his kingdom and his people. That's the, the whole scope of scripture. But just look at this little passage we have in front of us now. We see this. It says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And we saw last week the mention of the yoke and the burden of the tyranny and the slavery and the oppression that God's people had been through during the days of the Egyptians and during the days of the Midianites. It's, it's referenced earlier in this poem. This particular notion is that of a yoke being placed upon someone. The burden, the yoke, the responsibility, that which pulls the weight and bears the burden is on the shoulder of the king. 
wow, that's different. The story of oppressive humanity is that the king puts the burden on the people. The burden of labor and building and taxation. He puts a law, he puts a grievance upon them that they cannot bear. Not so with this king. This royal monarch bears the burden himself. And if I was a preacher that was just a little bit given to fantasy, I would say that yoke is a cross. That yoke that's around the shoulder. He bears that yoke for his people. He doesn't ask them to bear it. He knows they can't bear it. He bears the yoke of his people. The government is upon his shoulders. And notice what it says about here. He says about it's a kingdom that will, that will be eternal. He said the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's an eternal reign. There will be no end to it. It goes throughout all eternity. It is the final reign. It is the universal reign, the ultimate reign. It says here that he goes forth to establish it in justice and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. We see the king here has absolute justice. Isn't that what you're looking for in a king? Have you witnessed, have you paid any attention to how governments and authorities can be very unfair and very un, um, and very insensitive to the people? And how they can just get it wrong no matter how smart they think they are? Have you noticed how the governments can be tinged with bias and can be bent toward tyranny and oppression? And have you ever noticed in government that they can get right wrong? They can render unrighteous judgments. Have you ever noticed that governments can write into legislation things that are unbiblical and ungodly and immoral and against nature and against God's word and God's will. You ever notice that? And I'm not talking about monarchies of Europe. I'm not talking about banana republics of South America. I'm not talking about the Ming dynasty good governments, governments that think they're really, really, really upright can get it so wrong and so bad. That's what Jesus is coming to correct. That's what Jesus' coming amends, rectifies. He puts all things back right. He orders it according to the law of God. He orders it according to the mind of God. He orders it according to the wish and the will of God. And the creator now is the righteous ruler. Things are put back the way God did in creation. If male and female created he them in creation, God puts it back the way it ought to be. He does away with the confusion. He does away with the sin, the twist, the warp, the perversion 
the filthiness that has found its way into human government. This king will rule in righteousness and in justice. Another thing it says here, he says, it'll be from this time forth and forevermore. Well, we talked about this, an eternal reign, which means it has no end, but it also means it has no beginning. God has never given up his reign, his authority, his divine right over humanity. It isn't that God's just been sitting back out of control for so many centuries, waiting to a day when he would send Jesus to set it right. That's not the whole gospel. The whole gospel is God's always been in charge. God's always been right and righteous. It's men and humanity that are out of sorts. And they've got to reckon for that. They have to be accountable for that. They have found themselves crossways with God's character and God's will in all of their behavior. God's always been in charge. He's always had a kingdom. It's, it's eternal. But it says, from this time forth and for evermore. The kingdom of God is now with the coming of Christ, been visibly inaugurated within the human family. It's not just the divine ruling over the human. It is the divine and the human together in a perfectly righteous and infinitely just arrangement. And that is so unique that we call that holy. It's different. It's holy other than anything we've ever seen before. It is a holiness there. And finally it says here in this particular passage, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal will perform it. Can anybody recall, I won't ask for a show of hands, but as you contemplate it here in a moment, can you Recall any place in Jesus' ministry where he made reference to his zeal. Well, Jesus quoted a scripture. And the scripture he quoted was, The zeal for thy house has consumed me. When he scourged the temple when he drove out the money changers, when he took that which was obviously perverse, oppressive, wicked, lying, cheating, stealing, defrauding, the whole package was right there in that temple being exercised by those men that day with their money changer temple set up. They were a textbook case of defrauding, cheating, lying, stealing, oppressing, and Jesus platted a whip and drove them out and tumped over the tables. Just a little, little hint, a little precursor to what his righteous judgment's all about towards sin and wickedness and injustice. He will make it right. He will clean it up. 
He will, as the righteous judge in the Old Testament was told by Levitical law, he will exonerate the righteous and condemn the wicked as the pure and righteous judge of all the earth. What's going to bring him? What's going to set everything right? Is it God himself through his mediator, Jesus Christ, is going to rectify everything. He's going to punish every sin. And he is going to save every sinner that's under the blood of the Lamb. Where are you today? Do you stand in your own righteousness? Does your own personal track record and that of your peers and that of your nation and that of your family and that of your fellows stand before God pure and right altogether? Or do you know yourself to be over in that class and category of sinners? You're just afraid you're in that camp of people that have defied, ignored, disobeyed, transgressed, scoffed at the law of God and the righteous rule of God in your lifetime. You see, the gospel is good news to you. To you who are sinners, come you sinners, poor and needy, sick and sore, wretched and vile. If a sinner will come and bow down before the King of Kings, the royal monarch of all heaven and earth and all eternity, he'll find mercy. Where's that mercy found? Is it found in the judgment hall? Is it found in the, in the penitentiary? No, it's found at the throne. Come to the throne of mercy is what the scriptures say. It's the throne that has the mercy. The king, the judge is the one that dispenses the salvation. The one you have offended, the one you have broken. The laws, that one is the one who has mercy to save, mercy to forgive, mercy to receive. And that grace comes in the same person that we've talked about who's a God-man. The same mercy comes through that same man. Because in mercy, he took upon himself flesh so that that flesh could suffer, bleed, and die so that you don't have to suffer, bleed, and die for your sins. I don't know it. I don't understand it. I'm just a poor herald of the king. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not an intellectual. But I am one thing, and that is I'm a herald of the king. And I will tell you, the king has come and he is your savior. Kiss the son. Embrace the son, the scripture says. Come before him. Bow down in repentance. Prostrate yourself in worship. And he will lift you up to live and reign with him forever.